Shall we begin? Why not? Welcome to Frankie Sense and More. It's like she's got a whole lot of goodness for you with a little bit of sass. Frankie, did you just say... She sure did. Not to mention, along with... Whoops. Join us now as Frankie Picasso and her new co-host mix it up with authors, musicians, and interviews with world-changing people. Let's begin Okay, let's begin now, because it only makes sense. Well, hello there, and welcome to Frankie Sense and More. Uh, it's another Thursday, and it's the last Thursday before I go on vacation for the summer. So I'm really, really pleased that you're able to join us today and that my guest is able to join us today, too. And a little bit later on, Brent Marchand, our uh, illustrious movie critic, and uh, he's going to be with us and talking about the movie and the blockbusters you might want to see this summer. So I'm pretty excited about that, too. So with me today is Kim Barber, and Kim is on a mission to close the equality gap as it pertains to diversity in education, the achievement gap, the academic excellence, preparing and motivation, and of course, to inspire the next generation to successfully reach their destiny. Kim founded The Color of Education so that she could assist minorities, low-income or at-risk students to be successful in their post-secondary education. She was appointed to the Diversity Committee for the Council for Post-Secondary Education for the State of Kentucky by its former governor, Steve Bashir, and she was also appointed to their Strategic Planning Committee, same council. She's currently the Associate Director for the Educational Opportunity Program and Guardian Scholars at CSUMB. Kim is currently pursuing her PhD, and I believe she's almost done with that. We will find out from her in just a moment. Hi, Kim. Welcome. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. Thank you for having me on your show. And yes, uh, I am almost done, but I, I, I'm kind of like at the finish line and just need to cross over. So need all good thoughts and prayers for that. Absolutely. <laughs> I know how, how difficult it is and what an accomplishment, really. That's amazing. So what, what is your um, thesis? What is your, your PhD in or on? Right. Well, basically, I am, uh, my, my dissertation is actually on the study to identify the influence of cultural competence um, of faculty and administrators on the learning experience of African-American students in high school. Now, even though it just says African-American students in high school, this will actually be able to be applicable to, you know, any type of marginalized population is what we're looking at for it to be a model that I can expand after graduation. Um, so, I have a public policy uh, type of, of focus in higher education because I want to be in the place where I can be able to impact change for this type of um, move and having more equal ground for all students to be successful. So let's talk about your particular case and uh, let's go back, back, back to where, where, you know, you started out and where you started from and how you became so successful. Who helped you? Did anybody help you or... Right. Well, I think for me, it's just a little different because I actually come from a background uh, where education was very important. Uh, my family, um, it wasn't, are you going to college? It was, which college are you going to? Right, I right. You have to give a lot of thanks and gratitude uh, for my parents. Uh, both my parents are uh, college uh, educated, um, even post-grad. And um, so we have a lot of educational um advocates in our family 
already and many different phases. So that actually had a lot to do with it. Though I didn't, I didn't understand and know that I had an academic passion until later. I came from a business background. Okay. Uh, and so I took the business background and I was able to kind of become that academic entrepreneur and being able to advocate for students um, that come from marginalized backgrounds. Because I just started seeing a lot of um, uh, disenfranchised and, and um, sort of some injustice in some of the systems that I had uh, been accompanied with and wanted to do something that would be positive and bridging relationships and being able to have the understanding of the students, but also have the understanding of the system and the faculty and the policies that actually go with it so that we could be able to have those be bridged together to have a, a better learning environment. Absolutely. So, I mean, obviously it goes beyond money. Sure. Right. So what are some of the um, roadblocks you see for, for these kids coming up what, what's right. going to stop them besides money right right so yeah definitely the the finances is one of the biggest things of sure. course because the finances actually stop the, the preparation for you to get access into the post-secondary you know because of acts and everything SATs, sure. on what part of the nation you're in so finance is going to play a big part because of the preparation uh, where you live whether it's urban whether it's rural uh, those things play a part because of what's accessible and what's available there that may not be available and accessible in, you know, uh, more wealthier neighborhoods. Um, also, um, one of the things was transportation. Um, transportation ended up being a big, you know, um, barrier for a lot of our students because some of our students may want to go or need to go to a, stu- a, a college or university that's not in their area, and they can't really afford that. And then you have first generations um, of some of these students where the parents aren't able to help them like mine did for me. Um, so that's why we want to be able to have the different support programs to help them in accessing, but also help them in retention and going to graduation. Cause we don't want only want access for the students. We want total success of graduation and beyond. So do you think that they need to change the SATs? Do you think that they need to change those tests as I've heard um, mm-hmm. where you know, that, that they say it's not fair for, you know, diverse students. It's not, they don't have the same experience as, you know, let's say their white counterparts. And so questions and, and words and different things, do you think that it needs to change or should we bring everybody up to the same? Right. I think that's a great question. I appreciate that. Um, I would actually say that I I have done some research on this when I first got into my doctoral program because I initially was going to do my dissertation around it. So I did research this and found several different articles, scholarly articles that actually proved that standardized testing was actually culturally biased. So because of that, you know, I wondered to myself, you know, well, if we have this information, why are we not modifying something? So, you know, as far as doing away with it, I, I'm not necessarily proponent for doing away with, but modifying it, yes. I think mm-hmm. mo- a modification needs to be there because if we're going to actually be all inclusive, then we have to be inclusive of all cultures. And if you look at the derivative of this SAT and ACT, these type of standardized tests, they were actually made for the European culture and not for cultures that of uh, diversity. Uh, they were not included in the in the in the in the derivative of these standardized tests, and nothing's been changed for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so from its inception, 
um, it, it had a different purpose and had a different audience that it was actually targeting. And so if we're going to target a different audience, then we're saying we're being inclusive in the access of post-secondary education. We have to be inclusive also in the preparation and also in, in what we're using to measure for them to come in to know whether they're going to be successful or not. So there are some schools I did find out that actually have taken that piece out. Okay. So if you take that piece, and I'm just going to play devil's advocate here. Sure. If you take that piece out, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of history. If you take that piece out, what happens when they arrive at college? Is the professor got to change his course load, his, his coursework, to, right. and, and enable them to write in a different way? Or, or, you know, do we have to change everything? Like, what happens if you change sure. the testing? Sure. I think that's a great question. I think um, in changing, either in, in modifying or, or totally eliminating uh, the standardized test and having something in its place, like one of the universities that I worked with that actually eliminated that actually has an essay that they had them to write on that deals with, you know, the success where they can kind of be, they're able to tell whether they would be successful. Um, so they take that information instead. So you, there are other tools so right. I think what happens is that we, we don't we don't just get rid of something as a as a, a barometer, but we actually have something that's more equitable um, as far as the tool to be used. And when they get to the to to uh, the actual universities, because that's what I deal with now, um, when they get to the actual universities, there are lots of support programs now because they have noticed that and they did understand and realize the gap was right. something systemic. So since it was systemic, they had to end up changing, yes, changing some of the pieces, not necessarily changing the the professors, but changing the support systems that are around it. Um, so then there are support systems that are here on most campuses. If you go to most campuses, they're going to have those support systems. And one of the things that I always encourage students from the marginalized populations is always ask those questions when you're looking at different universities and colleges if they have those type of programs in place, because that's what's going to help you to be successful. Right. And a lot of times just because a person um, on standardized tests, it's also been proven in research did well on, on that. Didn't mean that they were going to be, um, you know, uh, successful in college. We had some that we had for special admits that didn't meet some of the parameters. And I mean, my gosh, they're actually going for masters and PhDs now. So I think a lot of times we have to learn how to not only just, change and modify that, but look at different tools to, to have in place that would be more inclusive and not exclusive. Okay. So, but we would still expect them to read yes. and write. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. And in the yeah. programs, we support that. And matter of fact, we have summer bridges that we have in, in place to be able to give them the, um, what we call more of a, a head start, like a, a booster. Um, yeah. So that it helps them to make the transition and it helps to give them the soft skills and the grit that they need to be able to be successful in post-secondary education. So yes, those, those other support systems and supplementary systems would be in place and not every student from the marginalized population is going to need it, but the right. fact that you actually have it there makes it a lot easier. So that surrounds the different classes. They're still going to write. They're still going to read. They're still going to do the math. They're still going to do all those things. We don't, lower the standard we 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 raise the we, we raise the support systems and we raise the tools we raise I like that those type of efforts to be able to help it to be an equal ground an equal playing ground right where other people from coming from different backgrounds have had the the fortune that experience to be able to be you know exposed to different things that a lot of the people from the diverse populations have not 
Yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. I went to uh, high school in Kentucky. Oh, wow. I really? Arrived, I did. I arrived there. I, I, I had lived in Canada. I had gone to private school, and I arrived there for grade, I guess I was a grade 10. Uh-huh. So, and I couldn't stand it. Um, I think we had like 200 kids in, in, in our English class with TVs around, mm-hmm. 10 TVs around the room. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a, I was, I was from a, a classroom of like 10. Okay. Oh, so wow. I'm just like, they were watching Beverly Hillbillies. I don't think I ever saw a teacher. So I, I just, I went down to the school board and I said, let me just graduate. I'm sure I can just graduate. Wow. <laughs> let me write, let me write my, my high school and my GED. Let me write my, my college boards. Yes. And, and I did that. And I, then I went to university like at 17. So oh, wow. it, it was, awesome. it was crazy though. I mean like, and I was there the first year of desegregation. Oh, wow. They were bussing the kids in yes. to this very wealthy white neighborhood. Right. Yes. And it was just as, and I, I hadn't experienced anything like that. Yes. But when I went to university, I went to St. Louis and I had okay. the reverse, the reverse there because mm-hmm. I was at, I was at a private arts college and you know, my roommate was black and she says, I can't take you home because you'll get killed. So it oh, was wow. very fun. It was yeah. just such a different experience, right? It was crazy, yes. but it was good to, good for me to experience that because we didn't have that in Canada. It was right. Like, you experienced both sides. Yeah. Both sides. Yeah. Makes a yeah. difference. It's, but, it's very interesting of the different experiences that you had, you know, going through. But I'm wondering if Kentucky is still had, well, Kentucky had the second lowest education standard in, in yes. the country. And I'm sure I could understand why. Yes. Know, because, yes. But, they, they've been, they, they are much aware of that and, and trying to make different changes. And um, I was very grateful that the governor uh, saw the work that I was doing and, and thought it was important enough that, that he wanted Kentucky to have better and to do better. Um, and so a lot of those uh, places, is, and even uh, the post-secondary council in, in Kentucky, they do great work. Um, so that's why I really um, ended up working with them, and, and they really supported a lot of things that I was doing. So very, very grateful to them yes. um, and seeing that and wanting to do better. You know, they're constantly, you know, wanting to do better and, and bring it up because they notice that. So you're right. They notice that, and they're, they're constantly bringing it up. They've made a lot of changes. Still work to be done, uh, but that's like that, and I think in a lot of other places as well. So where's where's where is it more difficult? Inner city like Chicago or smaller smaller town? You know, mm-hmm. like wh- where is it? Where do you find your work the the most difficult? Well, I, I would say it just really depends. I think it, it's it's more challenging. It's challenging anyway, sure. you know. Um, but I think it's more challenging. Um, not necessarily in whether it's an urban area or a rural area. I think they just have different dynamics of of marginalization. Right. But it's there. Right. But I, I would think that sometimes you just find a lot of states that have more, um, I guess, um, a, a more open mind to change. It's easier because then if they are open, more sure. open mind to change than the different programs, different ideas that you come up with, the collaborations, they're open and able to receive it. But then you have uh, some states that are, are very conservative uh, as far as in their mindset of mm-hmm. traditional education, and they don't want any change. And that's a challenge because if you don't want any change for a system that was derived for only a specific culture, right. then basically, what are you really saying? 
Are you saying that you only want certain cultures to succeed and other cultures to struggle? Right. So I think you have to kind of ask that question. And I'm wondering, you know, I mean, kids have, all kids have so much on their plate right now with the sure. shootings and just yes. all this crap that's going on. You know, is, are they at a, at a place where they're like, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Why should I bother? Can I even mm-hmm. be successful? Is there even a job for me? Is there even anything? Or is, mm-hmm. you know, like you're, there's a lot to, to, to put into them and stirring that yeah. pot to help raise them up. It really is. I know um, there, I know I've talked to several students and depending on the, the climate, you know, the uh, political climate, um, the um, social climate, um, there have been a lot of challenging positions and, and situations for the students and, and, and their mindset. It makes our work to be um, something that is even more, is needed more because what happens is the students need us to be able to even motivate them now, you know, a lot of times, because when you see so much um, adverse actions around you, you know, in the climate, you start to wonder, is this really going to make a difference? And so we have data and we have stories. So not only the qualitative, but the quantitative as well, show them that it is worth it. It, you know, that it does make a difference. And, um, you know, so many um, other followers and people even from before saw that education was always like the, the greatest tool to use against poverty and, and against ignorance as well. And as well. Yeah, so yeah. I think that that's very important that we continue to build their minds to have a growth mindset and not a fixed mindset. And we're hoping that that will catch on not only for the marginalized population that we advocate for, but also for um, the the um, policymakers um, that they start to see that and, and right. have the growth mindset and 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 the administrators and and because I play both roles of the administrator and also working with the student, I have the best of both worlds sure. in trying to help policies and different other programs and change to come effect come up to come you know about to make a more successful impact with the students because that's that's the bottom line. It's all about the students if we're here for the right reason. Well, how about a two for? You know, <laughs> kid gets in and mom gets in too. Yeah. I mean, I can, you know, like yeah, yeah. We actually had that one time. Did you? Oh, that's like awesome. Brief, and we were like like a briefing of just like talking about the universities and what you need to do. And the parent was with the child. It was for the high schoolers. And when they and they finished and they got in, they was like, you know, I really enjoyed that presentation. And you know. I always wanted to kind of go back. I wanted to go back to school, but some of them started and just didn't finish. Sure. And so they actually had the student to register and for, for, for the college and the mother register at the same time. So that was really amazing. And yeah. when you see that type of impact, you're, you're not only just impacting, you know, one person, you're impacting generations. And that's what you want. You want yeah. to impact generations in a positive way. So it does, and it, and it helps everything. The impact helps economically because it's going to impact those people that have better jobs. So even if you look at it politically from tax point of view, it's going right. to impact it in a positive way economically. And then even socially in our communities to be, you know, a, a more productive and enriched type of citizen to be able to contribute to different things, whether it's cognitively or physically or fiscally, you know, those things make a difference in, in being able to uplift people as opposed to pushing them down. 
Yeah, I can totally see that. You know, of course, you, you go to Europe and um, like you go places like Germany and, and uh, Holland, universities free. You know, they, yes. there, there's a lot of things over there. It, like, I'm really, a, I guess, a social Democrat because I, I do believe that, you know, being a, being a parent is an important job. So being, mm-hmm. you know, being like for the motherhood, they say, you know what, that's important. We're going to pay you well to stay home and raise mm-hmm. your children because that's, mm-hmm. that's a, a good job, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but also going to school is a good job and we mm-hmm. need to have people educated. And so we're going to send you to school. And I think that's so important. Like people go, oh, you know, well, how will this, how will the, professors get paid and how will you know these people do this and the books and all that but you know what i think it all comes out in the wash because corporations get brighter minds more innovation mm-hmm. and and you know you give it back just give it back there's a circle and i could see i mean i would hope that we get a little bit of that in canada you know right now we're in a um a time of a uh, you know new wave of, of uh political uh, candidates okay. coming up right. we're about to vote right now and yes. some of them are you know that's on the platform is is that's a big thing is taking away that debt because students come out of college and university yes. you know owing fifty thousand dollars how do yes. you start your life owing fifty thousand yes. dollars that's yes. ridiculous you know it is. it's, it's, it's crazy agree. crazy so to have that on your back you go what's the point why should mm-hmm. I even bother because mm-hmm. how many people can say i've got fifty thousand dollars in the bank that i can just give back Get back, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Believe me, uh, a lot of us would like to say that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you want a home, you want to buy a house, you want to have children, exactly. you want to, you know, life goes on, right? Mm-hmm. So exactly. it starts with school. Yes. Everything starts, the, you know, with school. We, we, we definitely have to have a better plan. We, you know, um, as far as um, nationally, we have to come up with a better plan for our education system here I, I, um, from the fiscal standpoint. Um, we, we don't want students to come and have, debt when they leave. Um, I always encourage a lot of my students about scholarships and grants yeah. mm-hmm. and things like that. That's the first thing that I want them to look at. Not, not constantly. Okay. Financial aid. Financial aid is great. Yeah. And we are so grateful to it, but you know, because many students would not be able to even have gone to school without it. You know, I understand that very, very greatly, but I think it's that we, we, we kind of, want to change the mindset there too to so that it's more like okay I, let's do well in school so that you can get this scholarship and get this grant as much as possible you may have to do a little bit of financial aid but it'll only be a very small amount it may only be 10 percent right coming out only only five thousand dollars you know as opposed to 50 and so i encourage that because i know here in california the um, the state is is aware of that because they have their community colleges to be free Right. You know, so that's something they have done. So I applaud California for that because they're already in that mindset of understanding this is how we have to do to be able to help our students so that they can get the education, they can make the difference. And then physically, physically, cognitively, emotionally, be a more productive global yeah. citizen. Because of course, like even what you and I are doing right now, you know, you become a global citizen. It's not just being a citizen of your, of your country. Right. The internet has changed all that. So we want to help them to be a productive global citizen when they leave. And so even if they come here to uh, where I, I am presently employed, um, we have four-year program, but like our program, we have grants that we give away for our students that come with first-gen low income from those marginalized populations because we know finances is a big barrier. Sure. And so we try to utilize that 
and try to get even more funds. And like, like the, the philanthropy, we are grateful for, but we constantly are looking for those things and being able to put into great positions to be able to help people like who our students are trying to get further in life. They, you know, they could be doing anything, but they have chosen education. They have chosen beyond everything that they've gone through, you know, in spite of all the, all the trauma that they face and have faced, they, they have chosen to go on. They've chosen to do better. They have chosen to want better. They have chosen to want better for yeah. their families and generations to come. They have chosen to be able to at least try. They have chosen this and they didn't have to choose that. So I feel like we need to get behind them and do whatever we can supplemental to be able to get them to that finish line. Yeah, I agree. And you know, like my daughter went through totally on grants. And the funny thing is that that they've got bizarre grants that you would never even think yes. of, right? Like, I mean, if you start looking at grants, I mean, it could be you've got one blue eye, one brown, and you get a grant. Yes. You no, know? I mean, it could be yes. you can jump 30 times and you got a grant, you know? Really silly things. But exactly. if you qualify, hey. Like a bowling grant. I had one student, they got a bowling grant. Yeah. Bowling, right? Yeah. But I'm so appreciative of all those people. Believe me, I'm so appreciative of all those people and all of those organizations that have grants for bowling. Yeah. They have grants yeah. for, like, like you said, one blue eye, one green eye, you know, for left-handed people, for right-handed people, whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's important. That's what I tell them. But I think a lot of times we have to teach them the skill of how to look for the grant. Yes. How to find it because it's, it's like a hot and seek game. Yeah. And so that's kind of the, fun, really. Kind of, um, you know, I, so, so when you, your daughter went through on grants, how does she find those grants? I'm curious. She, she researched them. She mm -hmm. looked it up, you know, and, mm -hmm. and she did all on her own. I didn't have anything to do with it. And, and, you know, but she was a mature student. She went back as, cause she failed high school. Like she totally bombed it, but she uh -huh. decided, you know, at 20, 2021, she was going to go back to school and do her thing. And you know what? She was valedictorian at the end. Awesome. So, so it's just the, the timing has to be right. Yes. And I, I, you know, I always said that, and I, I could be wrong, but I think that education sometimes is wasted on the young. I think that, especially like university, you have to be ready for it. Like, I think that if you went to work and at 30 go, oh, now I'm ready to buckle down and do that. I could see, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a permanent student. I love to learn. So, yes, you know, I could always be at school. But I wasn't ready at 17. I was a part, I go, oh, I can go to McDonald's every day. <laughs> like, that's what I was thinking. I, I'm not at home anymore, you know, like, really. Like it was great. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, and a lot of students, and you're right, like some students aren't ready, you know, for, you know, as far as their maturity, but so many are. I mean, yeah. you'd be surprised that some of these students that come in here, because especially from the marginalized populations, they've been through so much already, they had to grow up, they yeah. had to mature. So a lot of our marginalized students, I would say um, 80% of what we have right now are either at a 3.0 or higher. And so, um, well, 85. Um, 85%. So, you know, you have a really high percentage that are really already and are mature. And you have a few that like, okay, they're not quite there yet. And so we work with them to get them to that point. And usually by sophomore year, it starts after that sophomore year, it clicks in for some reason. It's something about sophomore year. After yeah. It's like they start to realize, okay, this is a change. This is what I need to do. Yeah. And this is worth it. They see the value in it. And now I need to get out. Now I need to focus on getting out. So something about that sophomore yes. year, at the end of that sophomore year, a lot of those who may not have been as mature as a freshman end up really clicking and starting to um, find their 
you know, their way. So, well, there's a I mean, big difference between an 18 year old, excuse me, or 17 year old today than 46 years ago, you know, yes. I mean, like big difference in, yes. in maturity. And oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because they had to just <clears> in the world, <throat> period, and how it is. You know, a lot of things yeah. we were exposed to later in life, they've been exposed to already at the That's age right. of sometimes 10 and 15. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. That's awesome. So but for sure. <laughs> for their, for their resiliency yeah. and their perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. Good on them. You know what? Good on them. And, and I'm glad that the, that there's programs for them. I mean, it, traditionally it would have been the football player. Let's get him through, but forget about yeah. the girls, forget about anybody else. Right. Cause we right. need, we need them. We're the exactly. basketball player, but everybody else be damned, right? <laughs> but yeah. now, now it's, you have it for them. And so that, that's exactly. wonderful. That's important. Yes. It's all about the more inclusive <clears throat> excellence uh, of education. Is there any trend um, within the diversity group, let's say, as to what kinds of courses or what kinds of um, careers they're looking at? Um, not necessarily. A lot of them um, are looking at STEM careers, of course, because that's been publicized <clears> a lot, but they, they have that interest. Um, um, a lot of them look at technology type of careers as well. Um, and then here, I, don't, I can't say for everywhere, but I know here it's a lot of people in the social sciences as well, which is kind of interesting. I think a lot of them want to give back. Some, some, somebody along the way made a difference. Um, and a lot of them want to give back, but I, I see a lot in the social sciences and just like I said, STEM, STEM technology, technology is a big thing. Now you see a lot of them doing that. Um, some liberal arts, but mostly in the STEM technology and social sciences. Mm -hmm. I think Brent has joined us. Hi, Brent. Hey, Frankie. How are you? I'm well. Say hi to Kim. Hi, Kim. Nice to hi meet you. Hi, How are you? Brent's a phone. Doing well, thanks. <laughs> he's a phone. He's I was going to say, yes, I do. He doesn't come on. He just, he's a phone. <laughs> We're just, oh, wow. I, I don't know if you heard any of the show, Brent. Uh, no, unfortunately, I did not. Yeah. Well, Kim, Kim is um, an advocate for education in diverse and marginalized communities, and uh, she's doing a fantastic job at supporting, you know, post-secondary education for those groups. And I think it's pretty exciting. Oh, super. That's great. In the, in the area of policy. And uh, so are, are you going to be a Senator? Do you think Kim? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about all that, but you just never know these days. I, I said, I wouldn't do what I'm doing now. And, and here I am just having that passion that drives you. And so you just never know. So I guess you could say, um, stay tuned. There we go. <laughs> okay. Well, wonderful. Stick around with us. We're going to go to the movies now with Brent. Uh, lots of good conversation there too. I don't know if you've seen any of those movies, but if you have, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll all, con we'll all have a little conversation. I am going to share my screen though. Let me pull up his stuff so that I can share my screen so people at home can see what I see because we don't see Brent. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'll try to go back and forth. And where is it? Here we go. Oh, well, first, the first thing I need to do um, is, is to congratulate uh, Brent 
for um, being named a finalist in the 12th National Indie Excellence Awards. His, in the New Age nonfiction category for his latest book, Third Reel, Conscious Creation Goes Back to the Movies. Nice. And Yeah, very nice. And it joins its companion book, Get the Picture, Conscious Creation Goes to the Movies, uh, which took the top spot in the 10th year. So congratulations on that, Brent. Well, thank you so much, Frankie. I really appreciate that. And also, I wanted to say thank you to you, too, for writing such a wonderful foreword to the book. I really do appreciate that. Well, thank you. I think it's a wonderful book. And I know that we had some great conversation around it. And, you know, hopefully uh, it will spark more conversation as people, you know, go forward and read it. So it's fun. You know, it's just something that both... uh, something that both entertains and enlightens at the same time. It's something that you don't always get when you talk about these kinds of things, but you know, I hope to fill the void that way. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what movie are we going to talk about first? Okay. Well, the first movie that I really liked uh, a lot is a movie called first performed. Oh, got on the right pace. Um, that just uh, opened last weekend, I believe it was. And um, this is a very powerful and intense picture from director Paul Schrader, who's known for doing some other very powerful and intense movies. Uh, it tells the story of a pastor who is in charge of a what's essentially a, a historical tourist church in upstate New York. And he's had some problems in his life, and he's having some more problems now. His health has got some issues. He's battling the bottle. Uh, and he's also dealing with having to manage a church that really does not have a very large congregation. He's sort of kind of a kind of a bench warmer, I guess you could say, in terms of the operation of the church. Um, but basically, he's having to wrestle with questions of how much he wants to be in the world or sort of above the world, you know, being in a spiritual realm all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it pushes him to question the, the need to balance his spiritual and secular lives, uh, something that I think, um, you know, probably a lot of us do at some point. Uh, it's probably especially troubling for somebody who is in a, in a position who should theoretically know more about this. Right. Um, yeah, but as, as the story plays out, it's, it's kind of a complicated plot. He ends up um, being asked to counsel an environmental activist who is very troubled about the state of the world. And even though he's trying to keep a certain distance from letting this affect him too much, he can't help but feel the the despair and also the the, the passion for the cause that this activist feels for his field and wonders, you know, how do we incorporate this into the ministry as well? Because after all, there are sections in the Bible that talk about us being stewards of the earth and uh, frankly, that we're not doing a very good job of it at this point. Right. Yeah. You know, so um, it it is also um, a case where he's having to deal with uh, a minister of a megachurch who is sort of bankrolling his own church to to keep it alive because if it weren't for him, it probably would just fold given the size of the congregation and so forth. Uh, and that character is played beautifully and ironically by the person you probably best know as Cedric the Entertainer. Okay. In a, in a serious role. Right. Which, which is amazing. I mean, I didn't know he had these kind of acting chops in him. He's just terrific. Um, so it's, it's a, a very complicated but very 
thoughtful, intense, interesting story that plays out. And uh, I really recommend it highly. It's the kind of movie that you're going to come away from it probably thinking about it for a long time afterward because there's just so much food for thought contained in this, you know, hour and 50 minute movie. Yeah. Uh, Ethan, yeah, Ethan Hawke is just phenomenal. This is probably the best performance I think I've ever seen him give on screen. I'm really wow. hoping that when it comes to be uh, award season later this year, that this performance does not get forgotten because he really does such a terrific job. So this is a movie that's not probably playing terribly widely at the moment. It's mostly in, in um, art cinemas and places like that, but I think it's really worth taking the time to go and search out. Thank you. That sounds amazing. And he's done some incredible roles. So you're saying he this really is the best one. This is like, that's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I mean, as his career goes on, he seems to be getting better and better. And, and this one, it's, it's just, I don't know where this performance came from, but he, you can tell that he really feels it from someplace deep within yeah. and comes out in his character on the screen. Well, don't you find that as you get older anyway, we start to question our spirituality and, and our belief system and death and all that stuff? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and the thing that I think is really important, though, is that it's really encouraging us to learn how to strike a balance between mm-hmm. our spiritual life in terms of its theoretical aspects. Mm-hmm versus how we actually apply it with the way we lead our lives in a very practical sense. Uh, that's something that um, you don't see a lot of movies examine in, in any great depth, mm-hmm. uh, but it really, it really does so here. I mean, for example, you know, he's feeling the weight of the world on him in so many ways, and so many people are encouraging him to say, it's okay to feel happy. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> um, so it's something that we may lose sight of. You know, if we get too caught up in um, carrying the way of the world on our shoulders the way he sure. does. Yeah, absolutely. Can I ask a question? Sure. So do you think that, like, these actors, like Cedric the Entertainer and, and Evan, and some of the ones that you've named, would have played the same role, like, 20, you know, say, ten, even 10 years ago? That's a really good question. I would say um, sometimes you have to grow into the role with time, with age. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, Ethan Hawke's character in the film is, I believe, 46, and that's roughly the age that he is, I believe. Mm-hmm. So it's something that, um, you know, could a 35-year-old relate to the issues that somebody a little further along in life is experiencing? I'm not so sure that they necessarily can. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. So art houses, let's hopefully it goes to, uh, to some of the uh, larger distributors. I'd nice. like to hope so. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. really worth it. Yeah. You always get the great, he's in Chicago. Um, Kim. So he always, Brent always oh. gets to see the great movies. <laughs> yeah, he really does. You didn't say that part. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. That's right. Oh, wow. Yeah, poor you. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that's so good these days is that you've got so many distribution channels that even if you don't necessarily get to see it on the big screen, yeah. at some point, yeah. you know, it's going to come to video streaming or DVD or Blu-ray or something like that. So 
you know, you, you do have options that even if you don't get to see it at the initial time of a picture's particular release. So that's great. I wonder if they would go to Netflix since Netflix is doing so much production. I would say probably yes. They yeah. they take pretty much everything these days. So mm-hmm. Netflix or Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of those two. Yeah. All right. What's next? Okay, the next movie on a somewhat lighter note, we have the movie Tully, which came out earlier in May and stars um, Charlize Theron as a, a mother of three who is feeling rather put upon by her circumstances. As much as she loves her kids, it's still all a bit overwhelming to her. And at the time she's just about ready to give birth to her third child, her brother decides as a birth gift, he's going to give her the gift of a night nanny to help come and care for the child overnight so that she can at least get a good night's sleep. And she's a little skeptical about the idea, saying, I don't know that I necessarily want somebody who's going to be nurturing my baby at such a critical stage in its development. But <laughs> after trying to go it alone and, and experiencing, like, all the, kid. <laughs> yeah, experiencing all the frustrations of what it is to be raising yet another child, she relents and, and agrees to have the night nanny come on board. And uh, she shows up one night. Her name is Tully. And she's played by um, Canadian actress Mackenzie Davis. And it's interesting that in this initial, after this initial skepticism, she really grows to like this person, not only as somebody who is caring for her child, but as somebody who's kind of a friend and confidant. Uh, they get to talking about a number of different subjects related to um, what it's like to get older what it's like to kind of look back on the choices you made earlier in life and uh, ask yourself, did I really make the right selections in terms of where I am now? Uh, so it takes a very introspective turn in terms of um, getting to the issues that are really at the core of this story, but it does with, it does so with a, a tremendously great sense of candor and frankness uh, it certainly doesn't try to uh, soft pedal or minimize the challenges associated with motherhood. Shows them, you know, you know pretty, pretty bare knuckles in many ways. Um, and also with the uh, the questions of getting older and getting to middle life and saying, you know, did I am did I end up where I wanted to end up? Um, Charlize Theron is again. This is another one of those performances that I really hope does not get forgotten at award season. She's just terrific. She is a terrific um, actress. She's such a. Comedian. She really is. Yeah. I mean, just seeing her range is just getting to be. It's so incredible. Um, but she knocks this one out of the park <clears throat> in so many ways, and I'm, I'm really glad to see that. Uh, um, you know, she has the chance for perhaps some recognition for it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I'm actually the, glad uh, that this topic the, came up, you know, because as a mother of three, <laughs> I had <laughs> twins, my, my second and third were twins. And, you know, my friends came over to let me sleep because just to, you know, to be up for almost 24 hours a day all the time. I mean, it, mm-hmm. you do silly things, you start to hallucinate, you know, like things you're crazy. And plus, you know, you're dealing with these human beings who need you. Mm-hmm. So it's very important that people look at, at this and think, you know, that's, yeah, that's an important thing. A night nanny, even if you get four or five hours, wow, that's like super important. Well, yeah, it's also especially important to her because her firstborn child is a special needs kid on oh, top of it. Okay. So, she, so she's wrestling with that as well as 
you know, having this newborn and, um, and a husband who, you know, it's not that he's unconcerned, but, you know, he's the principal breadwinner of the family. So he spends a lot of time working to be able to support everybody in this house. So is that um, Ron Livingston? Is that? Yes. Yeah. It's Ron Livingston. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, um, you know, it's, it's a lot for her to deal with and she's not really getting a lot of help until this nanny comes along. So um, this is a, this is a deceptively charming yet interesting film in so many ways. Um, I really recommend it highly. It's, I don't, it's, probably getting near the end of its uh, theatrical run pretty yeah. soon. So yeah. if you want to see it in theaters, I would say go see it, you know, the next week or two. It's actually uh, very surprising, you know, because I remember when Tully came out and I read the synopsis, I go, that's kind of a weird movie to go see a woman who needs a night nanny. Like it just seemed like such a bizarre topic in, you know, when everything else is going on, like all the other mm-hmm. movies that were out, but it's so interesting that it works and that it's, well, it- Charming. Yeah, and that's definitely true because when I saw the initial teaser trailer for the movie, I was not impressed. I thought, why did they make a movie out wow. of this? Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, especially since, um, but, you know, to a certain degree, I'm not going to be playing spoiler here. Yeah, there are a lot of very interesting little surprises and twists and turns as the way this story plays out. And if they had revealed too much in the trailer, mm. you know, it like would have given away. Do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it would have given away way too That's much cool. of the story. So, so they had to kind of play it cool in terms of how much they gotcha. actually told you ahead of time. But it's the kind of film that you'll come away from it probably saying, "I didn't expect that." When you That's come awesome. out of the theater, I love those kind of movies. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So, so go see it. I go like it a Tully. lot. Okay. <laughs> You're, you know, you're my barometer, Brent. You haven't, said, you haven't scared me wrong yet. <laughs> Frankie, that may be a new trend for a new career for people. Night nannies now. Night nannies. There you there go. You go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for night people. <laughs> so next, yeah. um, uh, also on kind of the lighter side, there's the movie Book Club, which uh, that's been out for a couple of weeks now. And it's a, a story of a group of four old friends who have been in a book club for many, many years. And in many ways, their, their relationships and their, um, the romantic side of their lives in some ways have kind of stagnated. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the group members decides we need to kind of kickstart things here to get things back in gear. So in order to inspire you, myself, and all the other girls in the group, we're going to read Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and it's a, it really comes as a surprise because this, this quartet of uh, book club members played by Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, and Mary Steenburgen, they, they're all like, what the hell are you recommending this for? This trash. <laughs> well, of course, Jane's the one, you know. Let's read this. Yes. <laughs> that was a great movie. I love this. <laughs> but as, as, they, as they do it, they begin to discover, hmm, maybe there's something to this. Maybe we can kind of rekindle and re-spark things in our lives, romantically speaking. So you have four uh, women on different journeys looking at different ways to kind of rekindle their, their love lives at a, at a later stage in life. Uh, each of them having their own particular circumstances and challenges regarding the men who may or may not be in their lives or the ones who they draw into their lives. 
and um, <laughs> it's 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 fun. You know, it, it's it's nice to see four veterans, yeah, really enjoying what they're doing because they obviously had fun making this movie. It's apparent mm. from start to finish. Yeah, um, mm. and the and the great chemistry that all of them have with one another because I don't think any of these people have worked together before to my I knowledge i don't know i know that like mary steenburgen and, and mary steenburgen is the youngest i think she's around 65 66 right but you know candace is what 70 and, and jane they're in their 70s yeah. for sure. jane, is, jane is jane is 80 80 and and i think diane is like mid 70s i mm-hmm. think you know so that's it's great to see that you know your sexuality doesn't go away your, right. you know, your femininity doesn't go away. The want, the desire to, you know, be a woman in the world, be visible, doesn't go away. And I think that's really important. I mean, I just finished my book talking about that, so it's kind of interesting. But I went with my with my dearest oldest friend of thirty five years, and we went to see it together because I thought who better to go see this movie with than somebody who's been like had babies with you and stuff, right? <laughs> And it, so it was a lot of fun. But as a man, Brent, did, what did you think? Watch, did you have fun watching it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I found that um, some of the jokes didn't land quite as solidly as I hoped they would in like the first 30 minutes or so. Yeah. But once, but once the story gets going, it just really picks up and, and they run with it. And it's, it's warm. It's touching. It's funny. I mean, you know, it was nice to um, see Don Johnson out. It was kind of fun to see him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 you know, it's it's a movie that that celebrates um, the fact that it's okay to be older. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you see so few films these days that feature an older cast. But I mean, between the four women and then the four principal men, like <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, you have uh, Don Johnson, Andy Garcia, Richard Dreyfuss, and Craig T. Nelson, who are also well up in years as well. Yeah. Um, oh, you know, yeah. to 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 see them to see them get a, a film where they're actually allowed to come out and shine as they do here is encouraging. It's uh, it's fun. It's um, you know, it's nice to see them to, to get a shot at a time when you know they might not ordinarily be getting them. And Jane Fonda wears a pair of white pants. You have to see this. She wears like she has a washboard flattest stomach in the world. Like you could not wear these pants unless you were like so trim, man. Unbelievable. And I thought it was kind of funny to see Don because his daughter, you know, played in Fifty Shades of Grey. She was the main character. So it's kind of nice. Dad and daughter, you know, kind of connected a little bit. So yeah, I, I mean, um, the critics have haven't been especially kind to this film in many ways. Yeah. But it's been interesting. I've kind of found that that the the breakdown of the assessments kind of falls along age lines. Mm. That the, the critics who are a little older are happy to see some of their cinema icons back on the screen again mm. and really enjoy seeing them being there. Whereas some of the younger critics are like, well, you know, those, who cares about those old people? I mean, you know? <laughs> so not realizing that they will be that they will be that age themselves someday. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to be a woman in age. It is, you know, um, it's very hard. And I, I identified with everything they went through in that, and they all look fantastic. They do. They do. They look excellent. They look fantastic. And yeah, I mean, and then they, they, sh- they have a picture of the four of them when they were young, like 20 in their tw- early twenties. Right. 
same same picture but when they were younger and it's like wow like they 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 really haven't changed a whole lot but they were like Candace Bergen was stunning right yeah. and I oh, yeah. say was because she still is really yeah you know but it it women women age differently than men it's it's a little bit harder men men really do look good as they get older <laughs> <laughs> they're lucky they're so lucky well I was, I was always inspired by one of the lines that the comedian Elaine Boozler said where she said unfortunately men get leeway and women don't <laughs> yeah when it comes uh, to yeah. aging yeah that's true. Well, men get everything you know they don't get the, um, they don't get the hormones they get don't get the emotions they don't get anything right. Their bodies working against them all the time <laughs> Well, and they don't get they don't get cut a break when it comes to the fact that they can kind of let themselves go and still probably be accepted as looking okay. Not that not just being accepted as looking okay, but when you look at men's self esteem doesn't go away. Like, no, they could be hefty and they still look at this. You know, <laughs> look at and women are like, oh my god, you know, look at me. They can be they can be beautiful and they still think they're ugly. So it's a very they, we really come at that from a very different. Um, point of view. Yeah, it's crazy. It is. But they look so, good. Um, so another uh, of the, the featured films that's out right now is another drama called Disobedience. Oh, and good. this tells the story of a, an aging rabbi who passes on and uh, his, his daughter, played by Rachel Weisz, uh, comes back to attend his funeral and ceremonies after having gone away for a while. She, she left rather suddenly. She, and people were surprised when she shows up because they didn't think they'd hear from her again. Well, part of the reason why she had to disappear is that she and one of her old friends, played by Rachel McAdams, uh, began developing an attraction for one another. And in an Orthodox Jewish community, uh, that's considered taboo. So essentially, she, they're confronting, um, you know, the prevailing wisdom of what's considered to be acceptable. Uh, in the time that Rachel Weiss's character has been gone, her friend has since married another person who was their third closest friend, uh, played by Alessandro Nivola, uh, <clears throat> who appears to be the successor to the rabbi who passed on. So now that these two women are back together again, the old feelings begin to get rekindled, uh, which, again, challenges the prevailing customs and traditions of their community. But it also kind of threatens the future of the, the would-be successor mm -hmm. to the deceased rabbi. So you have some dramatic tension going on on several fronts in this film. Um, it was a little bit on the slow-moving side at times. Um, I think the, the, the message is indeed a valid one that, you know, love knows, knows no bounds and it's okay to pursue your heart regardless mm -hmm. of what your, your, your peers may say. Um, but I wish they would have been, been a little more, I guess, direct in their pacing and, and the telling of the story. It kind of gets, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bogged down in um, nuance at times where I'm sitting there and saying, okay, let's, let's move it along, you know? Yeah. But, you know, but on balance, I would say that this is definitely uh, a, a film that has the right message. And for anybody who is, um, who's gay and trying to, you know, find their place in the world and find their true selves when they're in the midst of a community that typically still doesn't 
uh, allow that sort of thing, that they frown upon it. Um, this is an inspiring film to get them to move forward, act on their feelings, be themselves, all that sort of thing. Okay, but here's, here's my question for this. Now, she, she had, the friend, had, Esty had moved on. She got married to, to Dovid. And, and so is it right for, you know, Ronit to come in and, and hey, I'm back, you know, like uh, the feelings come up again. But should you, should you always act on your feelings? Well, I mean, in, in coming back, she really, her main, she, she states that her main reason for coming back was to honor her deceased yeah, father. Her yeah. So that really everything else that kind of comes in the wake of it was not necessarily quote unquote planned. Yeah. Um, and in the case of uh, SD getting married, the question was, did she do it because she really wanted to and really loved her husband or was it something that was considered something um, a matter of expediency or convenience you know mm-hmm. so um and those Either are, way, those though, are she, she married those are the, i guess i have a problem with having affairs and stuff i just have this thing that you know what if you don't want somebody then let them know and go away don't yeah it's it i mean from coming from the from the gay community um that practice was very common years ago to marry somebody just for the sake of marrying sure. them you know and these days with uh, same-sex relationships being much more accepted in so many other ways, you almost kind of think, well, why should they have to go to the step of marrying somebody or something like that now? You know, the, things that, the culture has changed so much since then. But when you look at certain closed communities, um, as you see in this film, mm-hmm. uh, as, as you also see in another release that came out not too long ago called God's Own Country, where you're dealing with two gay men in rural England in the farm country. Uh, when, you're, when you're surrounded by, you know, a conservative society, there's unfortunately still a very strong tendency to capitulate, you know, and, and kind of. I hear you on that it, point. It, but, you know? you got, but you guys fought so hard to get married in the sanctity. Yeah, of I know. Right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> that, you know, you can't play it both ways. It's, it, it is or it isn't. You know, there's something to it or there isn't. And I'm not saying that, that people stay married and they don't have to stay married. I just think that, I guess it's come up a lot lately for me. <laughs> to, to, to a certain circumstance, it really becomes kind of a question of legality versus culture. Yeah. And, and sometimes, even though you may have the right to do it, you don't necessarily have... Um, you may not have the courage or the fortitude to move forward with it simply because you still got lots of people, you know, pointing a finger at you saying, toe the line, behave, do what you're supposed to do. Don't engage in these, you know, uh, unnatural acts, things like that. And that's, that's a lot of pressure, especially if you're, especially if you're like, uh, you know, the one, the one sheep in the flock (laughs) who's different from everybody else. Okay, so I got one more question for you, um, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here. You, let's say, as a as a gay man, all of these there's a lot of gay films coming up right now. Now, are they right. do they feel contrived because now we can do it, or is it like a case that now we can do it, or is it a case of oh we have another audience that we can that we can you know pander to, or do they feel like this? Yeah, okay, finally our do ju- you know it's here. I think it I think it really varies you know, from film to film. I mean, in cases of, of a film like Disobedience, and as I mentioned, also God's Own Country, you're dealing with gays in segments of society that have been 
ignored or underserved. And yeah, I think that anybody who, who finds themselves coming from a background like that will especially relate to it because it tells them you're not alone, that there are other people out there who are like you, who, you know, mm-hmm. who are going through the same kinds of things that you're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's, to me, that's different from movies that came out like, um, the one that came out at the end of last year, Call Me By Your Name. Yeah. Which, which to me, I really didn't care for very much because I said to myself, there's nothing particularly groundbreaking about this. This is a, the kind of movie about coming out that they were making, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, I had to say to myself, yeah, maybe that is a case where they're just pandering saying, oh, yeah, well, there's an audience out there. Let's make a movie about it. Yeah. So it, it, I think it really comes down to the actual subject matter of the story. Mm-hmm. If, if you're going to be doing something that has not been covered before uh, from a gay perspective, yeah, I think you have a, a really good reason for wanting to make it simply because it's fresh new material. When it's rehashing the old stuff that's been done many, many times, uh, yeah, then I think it's, it borders more on pandering. So, mm-hmm. Okay. I just thought I'd ask. No problem. <laughs> well, we got a couple. We got like a minute. We're almost done. <laughs> Ah. Well, well, three a uh, couple of things I want to throw out really fast that I recommend. Two documentaries. One is RBG, which is about the film biography of Ruth Bader Ginsburg of the Supreme Court. Terrific mm-hmm. film. It's doing really well at the box a office. Wonderful so, feminist. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's in it's in theaters. It's been in theaters for a while, and it's still still pulling some pretty good numbers. So uh, I would recommend that highly. Another documentary that I like is called Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, which is a really uh, detailed look at his thoughts and views. And for a very short time remaining yet, uh, you have a chance to go see the restored 50th anniversary of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey, which Mm -hmm. after 50 years still looks great on the screen. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just stunning. Okay. Well, I know that you wanted me to make sure that I mentioned that you will still be continuing writing on the, on the Good Radio Network blog site and, and on our website of the films that are coming out over the summer. And, you know, nothing's written in stone for me. I could, you know, meet somebody and go, hey, I got to have a show. I'm going to pop on and do it. And I might do that. But I'm having a granddaughter being born in July. Yay. Oh, wow. Congratulations. So, so Congratulations. Grandma, thank you. So I just want to be home and be able to not have to do anything and just play with my baby. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so that's, that's one of my reasons. So everybody have yourself a wonderful, safe, happy summer. I will be back in September, if not sooner. Kim, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank um, you. I appreciate you have given me the opportunity. And Brent, as always, fantastic, fantastic <laughs> reviews of these movies. Love it. And we'll be talking. My pleasure, Frankie. Take care, everybody. We're going to leave Facebook and, and come back over to the other side. All right.